Uh, most of us in this room have experienced in some way, most of us have been baptized. I don't know about all of us, but I assume that most of us uh, at some point along the lines in our lives have been baptized. And while uh, baptism is, seems to be fairly simple, fairly straightforward for some people, for others it is loaded with richness and significance and importance that is hard to wrap our hands around or our minds around sometimes in some ways. Uh, baptism is in some ways mysterious and the ancient words of the church to describe baptism have often been a sacred mystery. The universal church which in the early centuries came to be centered around Rome and in Rome recognized seven sacred mysteries or sacraments as they were called. Those who sought to reform the church according to the word of God in the 1500s, so that would be the Protestant Reformation and all of the churches that came into being at that time and since then have recognized just two sacred mysteries or sacraments in the scriptures that they see instituted by Jesus and so have practiced during that time, baptism and communion. Still today, we practice or participate in these sacraments out of obedience to Jesus' commands and as a way of engaging God, maybe experiencing God, as a way of participating in God's grace, being aware that in baptism and communion, we are somehow united to God, united with God, we experience God, we meet God, we connect in tangible and physical ways with God. And in the sacred mysteries of baptism and communion, we believe the Holy Spirit seals for us, seals on us, seals in us, seals to us all of his promises. So baptism is the sacrament of entrance into Christ and entrance into the body of Christ. Baptism is the sacrament of entrance into Christ and communion is the sacrament of sustenance or ongoing nourishment in Christ and with the body of Christ. And maybe more than it is today, baptism in the name of Jesus was and has represented over history. It has represented and early on it very much was this defining moment or point or transition of transformation in a person's life, in a convert's life, in a new Christian's life. It was an outward and an inward act through which a person publicly accepted God's grace for them in Jesus Christ and publicly submitted or personally submitted themselves to the God of grace in Jesus Christ. You and I may have had different experiences of baptism, with baptism, with our own baptisms, and witnessing the baptisms of others in lots of different ways. Uh, baptism has come in many different flavors, been practiced in lots of different ways by different churches and Christians over the centuries. And if you would like to know more about the Presbyterian understanding of baptism, there's a document on our website. I can email it to you this afternoon if you'd like. Even within the Presbyterian church, there are varieties of ways of understanding and practicing baptism. Among us here, we've probably been baptized in lots of different places and ways. I was baptized as an infant in a Presbyterian church uh, way back when in Texas. Um, Without going into details about that, differently, Karen and my 
four children were all baptized by immersion at different points in their lives, something that Karen and I chose because of the rich symbolism and the sort of more involvement physically for a person in immersion baptism. Either way, we believe that God acts in these things, but we will see Paul's references to this immersion baptism as we read this morning in our uh, ongoing study of Colossians. Paul's going to refer to that. But first, let me pray. God, have us, awaken us, rouse us, cause us to be aware that we belong to you, that you're the sovereign one, that you're over all things, that nothing is outside of the realm or the range of your dominion or love. Help us be attentive to you, to you alone, to your spirit, to your son, to your word, to your will, to your way. Help us to be attentive as we read from the ancient book. I ask and pray that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as the apostle does in a number of his letters, the first half of his letter to the Colossians was loaded with doctrine and theology and descriptions of Jesus and of what God did and what God has continued to do for us and for the world, for sinners through Christ the Lord. Similarly, Paul in the second half of many of his letters goes on to uh, build on that foundation by applying the things that he has taught, showing the relevance of them and the ramifications in the church's lives in their daily practical lives. And that's what Paul does in Colossians. We're nearing the halfway point in our study of the book of Colossians. And Paul is shifting from theology and doctrine to everyday life and practice and what it means to live out these truths that he's expounded through the first chapter or two of his letter. So nearing the halfway point of this letter, toward the end of chapter two, in verse 20, Paul wrote, since you died with Christ, To the elemental forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? We talked about that last week. And then a few verses later in what is sort of the halfway mark of Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 verse 1, Paul wrote, and this too is the word of God, since then you have been raised with Christ. Chapter 2 verse 20, since you died with Christ and now at the beginning of chapter 3 and we will continue, since you have been raised since you have died with Christ, since you have been raised with Christ. Verse one, set your hearts on things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And there's a lot going on in these verses, so we're going to pause for just a moment for a closer look. To whom is Paul writing? He's not writing to the outsiders that we've talked about over the last couple of months. He's not writing to the outside observers. He's not writing to the agnostics or to the Judaizers. He's not writing to those whose primary belief system is Greek philosophy or the Jewish law. He's not writing to any of those people, but rather he is writing to those who have died with Christ and those who have been raised with Christ. And this seems, and if this seems like unusual language, 
consider baptism. Consider baptism. For us, it's just this peripheral little thing that we do when someone is young, when they're an infant, when they're a child, once in their life. It's a dot, a point on the timeline. For Paul and the early church, it was this consuming event and metaphor, public and private. To be baptized was to be literally and figuratively immersed Immersed in water and more importantly immersed in Christ and immersed with Jesus in his death and being raised with Christ to new life in resurrection. And baptism was not just for the first followers of Jesus and Christians, a public acceptance of Jesus and their personal submission to Jesus, but also this profound identifying with Jesus in his death and so also in his life. A profound identification with Christ in his being buried, in his being raised to new life. And so Paul writes, when he's getting really specific with the church in Colossae, since you have died with Christ, do not, dot, 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 since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your hearts, dot, dot, dot. And the early Christians' baptisms were not just sweet one-time events to which one invited relatives with cameras, large flash cameras, but rather they provided this profound and transformative framework for their new identity and a picture of their new reality, as Kyle talked about in his memory verses from last week. To whom was Paul writing? With what we've read and learned at this point in the book of Colossians as our guide, Paul is writing more explicitly, to people who know, acknowledge, and profess that God is holy and that we are not, that we are separated from God by our sin, that through Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God and who is supreme or superior to every other being in every possible way, God has reconciled us to himself through his grace by the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. That an awareness of God's grace toward us and toward all humanity in Christ inherently elicits in us joy and thanksgiving and elicits from us a desire to love, honor, and serve Jesus. And finally, that you so identify with Christ in his atoning death that you identify also with him in his resurrection as illustrated and affirmed in and by the dying and being raised of one's baptism, in one's baptism. Paul is writing to people who know that God is holy and that they are not, who recognize the chasm that sin is between them and God, who recognize that God's plan was to reconcile humanity to himself through Jesus by his grace, through his death on a cross, and for whom that awareness elicits in them joy and thanksgiving and prompts them to love, honor, and serve God to such people Paul is writing. Since you have died with Christ, since you have been raised with Christ, since your identity is so wrapped up and enmeshed in Christ, do these things describe you? Is this you? I can't answer that question. I don't know for you. But does this describe you? Are you by this description a Christian? Are you by these words in Christ? If not, then this is where you stop today. This is the stopping point. Whatever we talk about after this, ignore it. Stop. Give your attention 
to these first two chapters of what Paul talks about in Colossians? Do you recognize who God is and who you are and the way to life and fellowship with him and so also abundance? And does that spur or prompt within you joy and thanksgiving and a desire to love God? If so, you are without a doubt in Christ and a Christian. If not, stop and give your attention to those things. But if the above does describe you, if what Paul has talked about in chapters one and two does describe you, if you are by the above description a Christian or in Christ, then Paul has more to say to you, to us, and we continue. In verse three and four alone, Paul speaks of the past, the present, and the future. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. For you died. When someone presents themselves and or their child for baptism, they are asked, do you turn from? Do you repent of? Do you renounce sin and everything that keeps you from God? In other words, do you die to yourself? Do you die with Christ? Do you identify with Jesus in his atoning death on the cross for your sake. This is the past. If you do, if you do, Paul writes, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Not so much hidden in the grave or hidden from sight, but hidden or immersed in Jesus himself, wrapped up in Jesus himself, engulfed by Jesus, enfolded by Jesus. That is the past and that is the present and there is a future. When Christ, who is your life, appears for those for whom Christ is their life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ is your life, you have a future. These are all of what we call indicatives. They tell us how things are and what is, but there are also imperatives that tell people what to do and how to be. Paul's given us the indicatives, now come the imperatives. And so verse five, since you have died with Christ, since you have been raised with Christ, verse five, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, desires, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, another metaphor that we'll see more next week, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And so so without mentioning baptism explicitly, Paul is writing in such a manner that no one who was listening to him in Colossae could have not understood that to which he was referencing. Paul names a number of things not necessarily meant to be comprehensive that invoke the sober judgment of the God who is love and who is like a loving parent and what that God desires, desiring the best for his beloved. Paul's audience couldn't have missed the imagery of the old self and the new self, the death and the being raised, and the things that went along with that, that a loving God gets upset about 
in and about his beloved. Sexual immorality, which is a very general term that includes everything you're thinking of right now and everything else. Those things you don't want to think about, the things that may be in your life, but you'd rather think about someone else's sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, impurity, which is a body, mind, spirit, lust, evil desires. And of course, all desires are not evil. Is it true? Desires become evil when they become the center of something or when that desire becomes all-consuming and it's all we think about. Not all desires are evil. There is a desire for sex that is good according to the scriptures and the context of marriage between a man and a woman, very good. Not all desires are evil, but Paul says evil desires. Greed, which is idolatry, which is I can't get enough of that. And to this list, Paul adds a a verse later, rage, malice, ill will, slander, filthy language, and not telling each other the truth, not speaking truthfully, candidly, honestly with one another. All of these things used to be a part of your lives, Paul wrote to the Christians in Colossae. They used to walk in the ways, in these ways, but having been given a new life in Christ, reflected by their identification with Christ in their baptism, they were being shaped and formed into new beings in the image of their creator. And Paul says in verse 11 that in this new reality, as people were raised in new life in Christ and as people were being made new in Christ, in this new reality or kingdom, as we talked about last week, the walls and barriers that formerly separated people and defined some people as more important than other people and some people as less important than other people, those walls and barriers were being torn down so that here there is no longer Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That sentence there is strange at the end. But it's a way of Paul saying, your whole reality will become different socially and the way that peoples interact with each other, look at each other, judge each other, love each other. In this new reality on the present side of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, in the wake of Colossians' baptism in Christ, the divisions that place some people here and lesser people there, and laws and rules that allotted much to some and little or nothing to others were being defeated and erased in the light of the supremacy of Jesus who is all and is in all. Are you with me on that? But as I've said, Paul wrote to the Colossians with both indicatives and and imperatives, descriptions of how things were and instructions about how to do or be. And the reality is that these vices are not going to dissipate on their own. They're not going to die on their own. Being baptized in and of itself is not a magic bullet. We don't believe that, that baptism equals salvation. Being baptized alone does not, for most people, put an end to lust, greed, malice, filthy language. These things must separately, empowered by one's baptism, but separately be put to death. And it's at this point that many of us become spiritual pacifists. 
Some of us are political pacifists, pacifists when it comes to armies and war and international relations. But it's at this point that many of us become spiritual pacifists, reluctant to kill. We would never commit murder. But Paul says, put to death. In very graphic language, therefore what belongs to your earthly nature, put those things to death, and instead we put them on a leash. Or maybe I'm just speaking autobiographically at this point for the next minute or two. We put them in the closet or in the drawers, the things that belong to our earthly nature, thinking that if they are out of sight, then everything is okay, but we know where to get them when we want them. We know where they are on Friday night. Or when someone says something that's hurtful to us, or when we've been offended, or when we feel inferior or afraid, or when we're hungry or angry or lonely or tired. And the things of our earthly nature quickly and easily resurface because we only put them to sleep. We only put them to bed. We did not put them to death. We put them into a carefully induced and managed coma, telling ourselves that they're really not that dangerous and sometimes they're actually fun or fulfilling. They fill a void. But Paul calls them in no uncertain terms evil. And they're not evil because they ended up on the arbitrary list of a whimsical drill sergeant God who doesn't want anyone to have fun. They are not evil because they ended up on the list, the no list of an arbitrary God who just doesn't want anyone to have fun. Paul calls them evil because they are anti-life. Because they keep people like you and me from living into God's kingdom. Because they are diametrically opposed to the way God has designed people to live abundantly and eternally. And I was dealing with some of my own little rage this morning. Uh, I'd sort of worked hours on the PowerPoint and done this cool thing that, uh, and I lost it about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes before the worst. And it just deleted and it was gone. I was killing myself. But imagine this on, as a way to remember E-V-I-L. Imagine that I spent a couple of hours on this. E-V-I-L. Evil. And what's the flip side of evil? It's live. Yeah. It's live. And the reason that Paul is opposed to all of these things that he calls evil, and it just works out in the English language, is because they are opposite to or opposed to the way God calls us to live and that living is abundance, and that living is goodness, and that living exhibits and manifests the love that God has for us. And all of these things that Paul just puts into these impersonal lists kill. They kill. They may seem appetizing or comforting or judicious at the, at the moment that we appeal to them or reach back into the closet for them, but they kill. And they keep us from the life that God has for us. Since you have died with Christ, since you have been raised with Christ, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Have you put to death? Or are you putting to death that which belongs to your earthly nature? And I'm asking myself this question as well. And if not, why not? Again, these things rarely dissipate on their own. They have too much power and attraction. 
What belongs to the earthly nature that you have not wanted to absolutely put to death, but instead have only put on the shelf or hidden away or kept in your private closet, indulging it with snacks now and then in order to allow it to live? Feeding that little thing, just keeping it over there. What are the things that you have refused to put to death? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, rage or an out-of-control temper, malice or ill will toward other people, filthy language, not telling each other the truth, not being transparent, not being open and candid when is it appropriate. And not only do these things keep us from living, but they're inconsistent with dying with Christ and being raised to new life with him. They are inconsistent with the kingdom into which God has invited us in Jesus and into which God is ushering us according to one's baptism in Jesus' name and power, regardless of the means by which one is baptized. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Take whatever is in your life that is keeping you from a life that is hidden in Christ. Take that thing out behind the barn and shoot it. Take it out behind the barn and shoot it. If you need the help of a friend or a counselor or a spiritual director or an elder, a confidant, a co-struggler, get that help. Ask for that help. Pray. Ask for help. Find a partner so that you can, by the grace of God, the help of God, and the Spirit of God, put to death those things that are killing you according to your baptism. And resolve that you will put to death that thing that over the years has become the constant companion for you that you both hate and love. I was, uh, someone was talking about snakes this morning. And I was... Uh, thinking about a, a friend who had a snake in a backyard and poisonous snake, but he didn't want to kill the snake because it was a snake and snakes are created by God and they're part of the animal kingdom, but the snake would venture back into his yard, bite his dog, leave, bite his dog, leave. Put it to death. Put to death those things that bite us and then slither away. What is it that God is saying to you today to put to death? Maybe nothing, or maybe pride, or greed, or envy, or misleading people, or stealing, or not trusting God, or saying things that are hurtful, or having to be the center of attention, or laziness, or unfaithful stewardship of gifts, or fear, or racism. William Barclay on the cover of our bulletins this morning says, in baptism, the Christian dies and rises again as the waters close over him. And as if, it is as if he was buried in death. As he emerges from the waters, it is like being resurrected into a new life. God has done all of this. And in our baptisms, we participate with him in that. Not to be good. Not to be loved. But because God is good and has already worked all of this out and opened the doors for us. And because God loves us. Paul's lists taken by themselves can feel like, oh, I'm supposed to do this and Christianity is just a list of rules. It's not. Christ died. And Christ was raised to new life so that our death might be acquitted 
atoned for, that we don't have to die. We have been loved, set free. We are the recipients of grace. But in the power that God exerted in raising Jesus from the dead, we also have the power to put to death the things that are killing us in this life. What is God calling you to put to death? Let's pray. Hear our prayers, God. You know our thoughts. You are not far away. You know us. You love us. In Christ, you gave us yourself. In Christ, you suffered. He is all and he is in all. He is the supreme one. He is superior to every other being in every other way. He always has been and he will. Thank you for loving us, for setting us free for gifting us with eternal life. Help us to live into our baptism and our identifying with Jesus and the new life into which he ushers us. Give us the strength, the courage, the tools, the will to put to death those things that drag us down, that keep us from the life that you have for us, a life that is full of joy and peace and a life that brings you glory and pleasure. Help us, help us, help us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.